Hey, Jay. Cheers, Kelsey. Welcome to the Good People Podcast. The first one. The first one. I should drink it. Yeah, you probably should. It'll help. What are we drinking? Uh, what was it? Fudge. Fudge Pop something from yeah. our local brewery. Yeah, it's very good. It's actually, where I have an office, there's a brewery, too. Yeah. It's very convenient for you. Some problems. And for the future of the podcast. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, uh, welcome to the Good People Podcast, uh, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. Jay, you're my everyday hero. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks. So what are we, what are we gonna try to do? Right, what's, the, what's the point? Yeah, so, um, you know, for the last 16 years, I've kind of, right out college, started traveling around the world, meeting some amazing people that have influenced the way I look at the world, what I want to do with my life, what I've done with my life. Um, People that sometimes are doing so much good in the world, it kind of makes you look at yourself and kind of challenges you to like, what the heck am I doing? Yeah. Um, so they've inspired three books, Where Am I Wearing? It's my first book. I went to meet garment workers around the world. Where am I eating? This similar thing with food. Uh, and the most recent book, which is more on the nose to what this podcast will be about, is uh, called Where Am I Giving? It's about how we make a difference in the world and how we rise to that the challenge of the privileges and opportunities of our own life. So that's what I'm hoping we do is we talk to people that have, uh, it's a very, like a similar experience I hope for the listener as to what I've had as I've traveled around to meet individuals who then have shared their stories with me and, and um, have challenged me or I've learned from. And so that's who I hope we can have on as guests and stuff. And so are these people that um, that you know? I mean, who are you? Who, who do you expect to, the type of person? Yeah, well, I expect first we'll probably get people that I know because uh, who else wants to do this podcast that really at first doesn't even exst, right? It's right. like, hey, come and be on this thing yeah. Yeah. that doesn't exist. Let me talk to you for yeah. So definitely at first it will be. Uh, I've met some pretty awesome people too. Uh, so uh, one, I'm trying to work to get um, one of uh, Gandhi's descendants who I've had a chance to interact with. His, I, mean, his, I talked to his grandson at Rune. Uh, Tushar is his great-grandson. And there's and, a lot about that in your third yep, book. Right? Yeah, there's a lot about that where I was kind of in search of this good person equation, right? What does it mean right. to be a good person? And, and that, Which I think is what this podcast is really going to examine. I met a Hollywood director named Scott Neeson, which I'd love to have Scott on um, to share his story about how he had this you know, seven-figure-a-year job in Hollywood and yachts and movie star, girlfriends, and left it all behind to live in a dump in Cambodia, and it's like the worst place I've ever been in my life, but, you know, his life has more meaning and purpose, and he's happier now than he ever was, which is really challenging. Yeah. Um, so those are the kind of people that I hope to interact with, but I expect that it will start there, and it will branch out to yeah. people who I don't necessarily know. Yeah, good. So why are you here? Well, I don't know. That's, that's something I ask myself. Um, <laughs> No, I've read your books, um, especially the last one, but all three of them have been um, kind of disturbed complacency a little bit, but I think I'm a good example of most of your listeners and most of your readers who have good jobs and don't worry about fresh water and go to the grocery and get food from all over the world and may not think about it. And while I may have expected it first, part of the um, part of your books were going to be some responsible consumerism. Yeah which is kind of the standard book that you see, you know, don't use child labor yeah. and source your coffee. Well, that's not what I found. It was a lot more in depth, a lot more complex. So I, 
I want to uh, maybe play counterpoint sometimes, maybe ask some questions, but I want to learn, right? Because I think people like me, uh, like I said to you before, which is also in your third book, um, we get desperate on where to give money. And the only way I know to do that is, well, I look at their administrative fees. And is my money really going to help people? But I don't know how to evaluate that. You know, you give to that charity, this charity, that charity. Um, I want to learn. And I think some of the people you've talked through in your books have been uh, extraordinary. And I'll get a lot out of that and I hope other people do too. Yeah, well, it's definitely been um, a journey for me too. You know, I feel like I'm a much more comfortable place when it comes to that desperation doesn't exist so much anymore. I, I've become comfortable knowing that I'm always going to be uncomfortable in a world where half people live on less than $2.50 per day, where people die of preventable diseases. Um, but you can become just just apathetic and turn away from that reality of the way half the people in the world live, or you can uh, find a way to address that and I think to find meaning and purpose in our, in our own lives. And I really appreciate you. This, uh, you've been on me to do this podcast now for over a year, I think more like 18 months. So, yeah. uh, thanks for pushing me forward. Of course, you got a lot to share. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is going to be great. Yeah. I'm excited today. We have our, uh, first guest, uh, yeah. a guy named Justin Narducci. Yeah. And so Justin is someone I met in 2010. I met him in Nairobi, he was there with his wife, Erin, and their uh, two kids, and they've had a third child since, and they wow. were living in Nairobi. Wow. And Justin was working for this organization called Life in Abundance, and they work through local churches uh, to help churches be agents of change in those communities. So, you know, and I talk about this a little bit with Justin, and, then, and we, we talked to Justin, and and about how I used to have this really kind of negative con connotation around missionaries, yeah. which is, I think, this, in some respect, some of them have earned that negative. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are a lot of people that have that same perception. Yeah. But it's not like Justin's walking around trying to win souls. Right. You know, like right. he's working with people who are um, Christian already and helping those churches on yeah. the ground. So we talked a little bit. Uh, about that, and Justin really for me in that trip in 2010, I ended up spending the night in a uh, slum, which you know I've become more sensitive to the term slum when you have friends, you know, with people who live in this it's area. Met people, yeah. You know, but then calling it an informal settlement, settlement to like the average person who's thinking about these issues for the first time doesn't mean really yeah. anything. And even the people who live in the slum say, "I live in this slum." Um, so, but, so I spent the night there that was through this trip with Justin and he really early on helped shape how I'm thinking about these issues and what development looks like and what aid looks like. And that's one of the really things I think was important about this conversation was this difference between aid and development. And he yeah. kind of almost called me out on that, yeah. um, yeah. a little bit cause I was kind of making the two terms. Yeah. Equal. He, he was, he taught me something, a number of things I didn't know, um, but we will talk about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll do his official, here's his official bio from, now he's at Lifewater International and where they are uh, you know, wells and sanitation and like, you know, what thing that blows me away is that the amount of, of children that die every year from super preventable diseases. So we get into that a little bit. So here's Justin's official bio. Justin believes that poverty alleviation starts with clean water, healthy habits, and the knowledge of one's inherent dignity and potential. Justin is the fifth president slash CEO of LifeWater International. Prior to leading LifeWater, Justin served as vice president of an African-based ministry that worked with local churches 
to meet physical and spiritual needs of street children and slum dwellers. He has an MBA in international management from the Thunderbird School of Global Management and worked for the Boeing Company and its international business unit prior to transitioning to Christian community development work in 2007. So without further ado, Justin Narducci. Now we are officially uh, recording. So, are you feeling better? I have had some pretty decent jet lag, so oh. I'm much better right now, but yeah, it's been bad. Yep. Uh, where are you getting back from? I just got back from Cambodia and Thailand. Uh, we have teams working in Cambodia out in the northern part of the country. And then uh, I was looking at some drilling equipment in Thailand. So for Africa, of all things. So wow. So Thailand, let's, Africa. That sounds that sounds shady. I know that you're like in. The, <laughs> <laughs> like it's, so you're sitting on an airplane, uh, no doubt flying first class, um, right? Long flight, and yep. someone asks you like what you're on your way to do. Are you telling them that I'm shopping for well drilling equipment in Thailand to take to Africa? Africa. Yeah. So I usually am in row forty. Like forty CE is usually okay. where I sit. Um, I have a. <laughs> I was gonna say I have a small bladder. We're gonna cut that out. <laughs> I do have a small bladder. I go to the bathroom a lot, so I need to sit on the aisle, you know. Um, but Thailand is manufacturing a lot of things now. I, I mean, you should know this, Kelsey. You know, you're wearing cars that Thailand manufactures now, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think wait, all the wait, major- we have cars. A lot of cars are coming from Thailand now. Well, I think they are maybe not to the U.S., but um, at least to Asia and Africa. So um, it's not just Japan anymore. Uh, Thailand, I mean, mass producing all the major brands out of Thailand. So I think the manufacturing quality is pretty good. And we were going to uh, obviously go inspect the quality of drilling components and equipment. So um, because I had sort of similar reservations, like what's going on? How would that work? You know, what's the quality? How's the steel? All that stuff, you know, normal stuff. And um, I was pretty impressed, to be honest. So a lot of, a lot of the actual manufacturing is happening in Thailand. So uh, we would be importing a truck from Italy. They would do the manufacturing and assembly in Thailand. They have a, like a, tr- a duty-free zone, geography, like a border. Yep. So if the, ve- if the vehicle comes from Italy and it stays in that zone, it can, um, they can add value to it and create a product without having a tariff on it, which is helpful for us. So those factories have to be like right on the water then? Basically, yeah, right, right okay. in Bangkok. There's like, a, there's like an actual zone and like you can't take the equipment out of that geographic zone or it gets taxed hmm. differently. So it can come in and out so they can add value without having to tariff it significantly, which I thought was pretty interesting too. So yeah, I, I was impressed. There's a lot going on over there. So where did you learn to like uh, look at steel and, and drilling equipment and like the, <laughs> some quality stuff? I, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I didn't see that on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, no, I kick the steel to sort of determine its thickness. You know? <laughs> <That's good>. um, <laughs> if you, if you hit it with a coin at the right, you know, point, you get to hear the reverberation. So um, I bring a guy with me who knows that stuff. Um, so we have a contractor who's been a driller in Africa for a long time. He was a missionary kid, grew up in Africa um, and started drilling wells a long time ago. He runs a, a great organ, founded a great organization called Water for Good. They still go on. He, he consults for us. So uh, Jim came with me 
and we were sort of designing the the right rig for us, quote unquote, whatever uh, our particular needs are in East Africa. And he's sort of the brains of the operation, and I'm just you know male modeling basically yeah, for nice. that. Um, but he can tell this is quality, and I probably get that part from somewhere else, you know, that kind of thing. And um, using his experience for that. But yeah, you're right. I'm not. Uh, my steel knowledge is pretty um, weak. Yeah. yeah. So how were things in with your projects in Cambodia? I know those were newer projects, right? Yeah. Cambodia is, uh, it, our strength is definitely in East Africa. Um, we're learning a lot about Asia and uh, particularly Cambodia. And I actually just went to um, encourage the team. We have two different teams there. Uh, one is working in like the Siem Reap area. Uh, with rural communities, and then one's working with ethnic minorities up in the far northeast part. And it's just hard work, and it's very um, slow, and they, they're they frustrated with things. And so I just went to encourage them to keep pressing on. Um, we actually, it was, I was there on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and so I did a whole sort of lesson on perseverance with Martin Luther King Jr. as the example. And um, I think it was really interesting for them to learn about segregation. And I showed a lot of these different pictures on my phone about um, having a vision for what can be in the villages you serve and having to overcome obstacles. I also used the, the Bible passage from um, Joshua where like Moses hands over to Joshua. Well, Moses dies, I guess he didn't hand it over. And Joshua sort of has this responsibility to take the Israelites into the promised land. And he's nervous about it and he's got to run this army and he's young and he sort of sees the vision, knows it, but is scared. And I think that's where a lot of us exist in, at least in, in that Cambodia context, they're just uh, overwhelmed and they're frustrated and things aren't happening as fast as they want. And so I just tried to encourage them um, to have a vision for the future, see that community thriving and know that these obstacles are just part of the process and we have to keep persevering and pushing forward into um, a better future for those villages. And I think, um, I think it was encouraging. I spent a lot of time explaining segregation, to be honest. So, cause that, that was sort of a new concept. And so we had to work through that and I showed a bunch of pictures on my phone. Um, because I think, um, I think a lot of people in the developing world uh, have a different picture of America. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of, um, I'm going to use unicorns and bunnies. That's not their picture, but yeah. their picture is of this perfect place. And um, sort of the message that I often have is we, there are, there are a lot of amazing people in history who have done really hard things to make the American experiment work well or better. Um, it's not perfect, obviously in many ways, but um, you know, segregation was only 50, 60 years ago that we're talking about a scourge on a society like that. And we don't even think about it, you know, but that's, yeah. that's our grandparents' generation. It's not that long ago. So mm-hmm. uh, what I was trying to encourage our staff is to be that Martin Luther King figure in those villages and to have a vision and to pursue it, even in the face of opposition. And um, well, their society was somewhat segregated, right? Uh, it is. With the Khmer Rouge and who was, you know, they got rid of the, people with educations and I mean, it was kind of divided down the line and is that, so could they relate some to that or is that? I think, uh, well, the, the, the killing fields, right. Were 
I think they could relate. I think the genocide is a different deal. Yeah. I think there's a lot of weight from the genocide on the conscience and the psyche of people who are byproducts of that. Um, I find the younger generation tends to sort of think about those things more. The generation that were children who during that time, I think have a lot of emotional um, scars yeah. from that. So that, I don't think it's, I don't think they make the connection as, as you just proposed, but mm. I think the younger generation thinks about that a little bit more. The, um, the thing that's interesting about Cambodia particularly is the ethnic minorities are looked down upon. And so um, they are pretty marginalized in, in the government and all that kind of thing. So some of that relates too, but they don't often like commingle. So some of that doesn't exactly align, but yeah. Um, are you familiar with Scott Neeson, the Cambodia children's fund? A little bit. Chance. Yeah. So yeah. I, I met, I, um, had experience at the at the dump that they work in, and I wrote about it a little bit where my work. Yeah, and then I went back there for where am I giving? Their program's grown a lot. Like some of the kids I saw that day on the dump, which is like the worst place I've ever been, uh, now are like graduating college, and they have like I forget like three thousand kids in school, and they have a school there. Anyhow, Scott was telling me that they have this program. I got to meet some of uh, these individuals in their granny program. So like I met a granny who was like. 80 or 90 years old, you know, um, and he often talked about how important that generation was because they remembered a time before the Khmer mm. Rouge and like they were the ones who ended up being more affectionate, um, uh -huh. you know, hu more, more hugs, um, more, lo more loving and also passed on more of the culture than the, you know, the parents of the kids or, um, I mean, she might have been a great grandma too. You know, um, I thought that was fascinating. That's pretty interesting, and I, I think, honestly, I hadn't even thought about that because I haven't met that many people who are of age or who were, who you know, resemble that society. There's just not that many. I think. Yeah. I mean, at least in the places I've been in Cambodia, I've probably been, I don't know, a bunch, but. Um, it's really eye-opening, and it sort of makes you want to spend time with those people, um, or at least for me, like try to find those people because I haven't had that same experience. So you're you're sitting on the flight, flying to Cambodia. What do you tell the person sitting next to you um, that you do, or do you try to hide that because <laughs> you don't want to get in the conversation? <laughs> conversation. Well, I sort of have these rules of engagement on the plane, you know. Yep. And uh, I have a big sticker on my computer. So if I'm, I usually do work until my mind starts turning to mush, uh, just because I have a ton of like emails and stuff to go through. But um, usually if there's a question asked, you know, that seems interesting, then I'll sort of, you know, we, um, we, I'll throw a softball. Like, oh, we do wa water projects and health projects in East Africa or Asia. And then if there's some interest, you know, we'll go into greater depths about things. And then if there may be a practitioner or somebody who does similar work, we would talk about models and values and things like that. I find that um, most people have generally no idea about this stuff. Um, the one, when I travel to Africa, there tends to be uh, a little bit more awareness I find flying to Asia, people are mostly going on vacation. Mm. So, um, yeah. but the Africa ones, at least from Europe to Africa, tend to be a little bit more, um, I have more conversations, I should say, about 
things that are more practitioner based, which is where I really have fun. You know, how do we design programs and how do you engage communities and all the different facets to running a, a effective program that those are fun conversations that I like to have with people if we can get there. Um, but they're pretty few and far between. I think most people are like, Oh, that's nice. Cool. Yeah. So how, how do you like to the person that's just learning about these, like what, what kind of message do you deliver to them about the, the water situation? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest piece of education that I've learned to provide is just that the, the water crisis is more than about kids not having safe water to drink. Um, we all have those images of kids drinking water from ponds, and that's real. But it's, it's not going to be solved by drilling boreholes all over the place. Um, because what we have to deal with is the whole disease pathway. How, how, do fecal, how does fecal waste impact um, the disease pathway and enter that water, even if it's safe water, at the home or at school? And so we really have to address these root causes of behaviors and behavior changes, which is not fun stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's way more fun to talk about drilling a borehole, water flowing up all over the kids playing in the water, you know. Um, but if the kids are going to the bathroom outside and that fecal is on their hands when they, when they fill up the water jug and that fecal contaminates the water, they're still getting sick. And that's, we haven't done our job if that's the outcome that we're getting as people who are addressing the clean water crisis. So, um, I guess the big aha for a lot of people during those conversations is we have a, we have a water situation, but it's all integrated and village health, whether it's hygiene practices or sanitation or, um, water storage is, is so much more than just drilling a well. And in order for us to get to places where children really do thrive and are healthy and aren't having waterborne diseases and have safe water, you know, it, it, it's a little more um, complicated. And so, you know, we're getting into um, behavior changes. And I often talk about, you know, um, it's one thing to like tell people they shouldn't smoke. It's another thing to work with people over time as they struggle with changing their habits or seatbelts or those sorts of things that, you know, smoking was normal in the seventies for all of society. And now it's pretty, it's pretty marginalized. There's just a small portion of the population. That's sort of what we're dealing with at community health where people literally go to the bathroom everywhere. That's how they've done it for generations. And if we provided a safe water source in that community and everyone still goes to the bathroom outside and doesn't change their habits, we really haven't affected the disease pathways. They're still going to get sick and we haven't made the gains on that safe water that we really want to, or should be realized. So we have to address these habits and work with every family to build a latrine and have latrines in community centers where people can start changing that behavior and it will become normal and this generation will never know a reality where they didn't have bathrooms at home. So all of that stuff is integrated and, and, um, and complicated, to be honest. So I generally sort of talk about, if someone's interested, I would talk about, yeah, safe water is really important, um, but equally important is people using um, proper hygiene and sanitation behaviors. And that part is actually way harder than getting the safe water in. Safe water is an engineering problem. Um, hygiene and sanitation is a public health problem. Yeah. And so we try to address both of them in a way that the community can participate and start realizing that they really can make positive gains in their life and in their village. And um, all of that has to be organized into a program that's very thoughtful and intentional. So I think a lot of people have this um, perception of 
safe water. You just have to drill holes. And once we drill enough holes, everything will be solved. And I wish it was that easy, yeah. but I, it's just not the case. I mean, even with the travel I've done, I've been surprised. I was in, I was in Zambia in, um, in the north, uh, a place called, M, I think it was Mbala. I don't know if you've ever been up there. I've never been to Zambia. We should go together. Wait, let's do it. Okay. Do it. So I was there <laughs> tracking down a, a person's child that they sponsored through World Vision. Uh, which World Vision wasn't the most excited about, but anyhow, we can we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. They didn't want you to go find them. Hey, I'm looking for this kid. Can you show me this kid? Did you find him or her? Uh, no, I I did not. I, I mean, I, I did some due diligence up front. Where like a couple months ahead of time, I actually sent you know stuff and tried to get um, you tried to get them to give me permission and help locate this kid, and uh, they were very reluctant to let me talk to anyone. Um, hmm. So that was that was interesting. But was it because of like child trafficking stuff? Were they nervous about that, or was it something different? Uh, I mean, they did a background check on me, and uh, oh, that that that's why. <laughs> maybe that's why. <laughs> I don't know what they turned yeah. out. Uh, no, I, I wonder why they didn't let you go see the kid. I, it was I don't know. Um, it was even hard for me to get to see any of the people in the pro that were impacted by their programs. Um, I mean, literally at one point in time, we rolled up to this village, Dr. Village Chiefs. I'm getting out of the white, you know, SUV with the sticker on the side. And they're like, you wait here. And I'm sitting in the back of this pickup truck, in the back of this, you know, SUV. And they crack a window open for me. And there's a dog sitting outside, like, looking at me. And I'm like, yeah. Um, anyhow, that, that's not where I was going with all this. But um, so th- th- they were just reluctant. But my, my point is, in that area, there was a billboard. And it said something about like um, celebrating that they were uh, a uh, open mm-hmm. defecation free, I don't think it's yep. like uh, county. Yep. And y- when you first see that, you're like, what? Like, you know, that just I, I, I assumed that you know, many people were going and uh, constructed one location to use that was more healthy. And uh, even though I, I mean, it was obvious to see that this region was really, really, um, this people really struggling to make, um, you know, to, to meet their basic needs. But that even struck me at first as like, what? Yeah. And even though I've been to these places and, and sat in these people's, many people's homes, that, that, that was still something to be celebrated that people just weren't crapping out wherever. It's, I think it's a really good point. Um, ODF, our marketing people hate when we talk about ODF, open defecation free, because they're like, no one wants to talk about poo, you know? And uh, the reality is that that's really a crisis. Like Mm -hmm. you're talking about 2.3 billion people in the world who don't practice proper defecation or proper sanitation management is a nice way to say that, right? Um, Who don't bury their poo somewhere where it can't get flies and move around. And... um, that's a huge issue for everyone. So open defecation free in a particular area is something to be celebrated. Uh, And we track it. I just pulled up our number while you were talking to see how many ODF villages we had last year. Uh, We had 191. We celebrated 191 different villages that had that same banner raised. And the great thing about ODF, obviously from a, a disease reduction standpoint is huge, right? But it's, it's the type of activity that a community can do themselves with just a little bit of coaching. They can build little household latrines that with the materials that are available. It's not expensive. 
and it's something that um, the community can help widows do, or they can help child-headed households do. We really encourage local churches to go and find the vulnerable people in the community to help them build their own latrines. And it's not expensive. And they're really interesting. Like um, we take pictures of every single household latrine and they're like a piece of art because it represents the local materials in the local way. And they're not cookie cutter. And we have sort of like basic standards. It needs to have walls and a roof and it needs to have a cover of the pit, you know, all that kind of stuff needs to be certain depth, blah, blah, blah. But outside of that, you know, be creative as you want and use whatever materials you have. And, a sense of pride really comes when people like I probably have visited thousands of household latrines. I'm not even kidding. And That's everyone what you should lead with on the airplane. I've, I visit. <laughs> Can I see your laboratory? <laughs> the, um, but people love showing their toilets, you know, when they've built it themselves and have that pride of ownership. So that whole conversation about, um, fecal is, is really interesting and it does matter. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've had this conversation. Go ahead, Jay. Justin, this is Jay. Um, question about that. So your teams that are on site, you obviously have engineers for, you know, the access and drilling for water and the infrastructure that it takes to do that. Is there a different team that works on the social networks yep. and traditions to help people train and learn um, how, to, how, to, how to move forward in that way? Exactly. So um, we have two teams. Um, and all of our staff are structured the same way. You have sanitation hygiene officers, and then you have wash technicians or water technicians. So some are working on the hardware, so the construction of those activities, um, school latrines, safe water sources, all of that. And then the other teams are working on software, which we call like the mindset and the community behavior change. And um, they actually work house to house, village to village, and we have a very sort of intentional and intense program where they work with every home to adopt these what we call six healthy habits and when they do adopt those healthy habits at their home they become a healthy home so we've essentially gamified this process where people can achieve these steps over a series of months and essentially win the game which is a healthy home which means that they're practicing the habits and we acknowledge that and there you get a special sticker on their door and we register it. We register the family. We actually put them all on our website. So you could go see all of, well, if they give us permission, we put them all on the website right. and you can go see them. And then what happens is in, in a community, like say there's a village and it's got 50 families in it, 50 households. Once a number of these families start having these healthy homes, you begin to see the ones that don't. And they have this peer pressure. I would call it positive peer pressure where they, now everyone's like, oh, you guys are the ones that are eating your own poo, Right. Oh, you, you know, so they want to change their behavior just because they're the ones who haven't and don't have the sticker on their home. So it's a different sort of motivating factor if they haven't adopted the behavior already. Um, you can get to a critical mass of people who, wow, 70% of the homes in this village are, are not healthy. What's, how can we help you? Or, you know, people start to feel like they're the ones who are now being viewed negatively because of their lack of a healthy home well and from the other side i'm sure you, you you're instilling individual family and community pride in the process right so then they start to look at each other and say we're starting to we're, we could do this yep we're, we're doing this as a community and we have something of worth yeah yeah and that's community development and i think community that's sort of the fun stuff like how can communities participate in their own changes right and when they start realizing, oh, we can actually become open defecation free. Oh, uh, we've had all schools and villages where we work realize, oh, we can, we can put our money together and hire another teacher 
or we can put our resources together and build another classroom. Um, water committees who save money for the maintenance of the water source. They're uh, investing in bowls that they're fattening and using that as a village savings fund. So they'll, fatten the, they'll put the money in, fatten the bowl, increase the savings. And it just gives them a lot of confidence in not only the, the improving of their own health, but in their ability to affect change on their own. And that's the stuff that leads well beyond just the, the WASH program that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, ne- I would never understood that or I've never heard anything like that. It's very helpful. Well, I mean, if, you're, if, your neighbors, if you're doing it and your neighbor's not, you still could get sick, right? So your kid could get sick. You will get sick. And so yeah. there is a thing where you're like, hey, <laughs> so this is horrible. I don't know if you'll want to put this on. We, there's a, there's an, a, a, a triggering event. It's like a catalytic event that we start the program with. It's called CLTS. And a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on CLTS community-led total sanitation. And what you do is you literally walk around a village. This is at the beginning of an initiative. You walk around a village, pick up a piece of poo that you see from someone in the community, put it in a water bottle, shake out the water bottle and say, would you guys like to drink this? Mm. And everyone's like, gross, you know? And then the sort of realization is actually we are drinking that. Like that's what's happening when you walk around the village and you see poop everywhere and the flies move and you Mm. explain these disease pathways. How does that fly land on that food? Well, that gets in your mouth. And if you clean up your compound and those flies are moving from your neighbor's feces, that's still their poo in your mouth. And that's the kind of stuff that people are like, oh, that's, I would really like for that to change. So the key for CLTS is to follow it with actual activity and not just like scare people, you know. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really stood out when we were traveling uh, in 2010, when we were in Nairobi together, uh, was the, uh, it was, and I think it really changed my thinking. It was like local people helping local people primarily. It's not, you're not showing up and like, doing all the work you might have a team then that comes in and helps put in the well and train the local people to maintain Mm -hmm. it but a lot of those the social network the community building and networking is is often locally led is that correct 100 percent um this is a this is an important thing so i'm going to come back to community development in, in this in this sort of principle but what do i know about a rural ethiopian lifestyle you know i or a rural Ugandan lifestyle. I, I have no context for that, right? And same, what, what does a rural Ethiopian engineer know about best practices of borehole drilling? You know, So we both have these strengths and we both have these gaps in knowledge. And so what we've tried to do with LifeWater staff, and many others do this as well, World Vision does a great job of this, is um, hire local people and provide great jobs for them, provide great training for them and really develop local capacity to run and manage programs and um, build this mutual exchange of ideas where you take best practices from a headquarters like ours, where you have a bunch of really smart people who have studied this stuff for a long time and you combine it with field people who know reality and actually know what's really possible. Right. And together we work in tandem to develop something that would be, far more effective than if one of us were doing it independent of one another. So we've structured our um, staff. So we're hundred percent local staff um, implementing helps with language, helps with culture. It helps with uh, receptivity um, because people can empathize with like, I can't empathize with a mother who's lost a child in the same way that a, a, a program manager in Ethiopia who's lost a brother can empathize. You know, there's just uh, it reduces the friction a lot. And so uh, we have 130 local staff 
and about 25 staff here at headquarters, about a five to one ratio. And if you were to walk down our hallways, they're on Skype all the time talking about strategy and well, this isn't working here. How would, how should we modify that? So we're, we're acclimating to the local culture, but at the same time, I think uh, the long game of, of development is local leaders operating in their context and leading change on their own, whether that funding is coming from the West or locally, you know, leadership capacity is not something reserved to people like you and me. Um, and so I think instilling those principles and giving them chances to lead and um, supporting their own learning and development through the process also allows us to learn and develop through the process and not actually think we're so great and have all the yeah. solutions to the problems. You I know? Mean, my sense with aid is, is, and I guess maybe my early understanding of it and, you know, maybe 20 years ago when I first started thinking about some of this stuff um, was that it often was people from outside coming in and like, Hey, we're the experts. We know what's best for you. And, um, and I think that kind of was the case. Is, is that shifting? Is that still, is that, I mean, I think it actually still exists, but is that are the majority of NGOs and nonprofits getting away from this world of like, hey, we know what's going on. We're from outside. We're going to help you. It's not so much like that locally led, informed change. Yeah, it's a big question. Aid is tricky um, and how, how one defines aid. You know, is aid just government money that's being pushed through to projects um, that tend to have shorter durations? Like, I wouldn't classify what us and our peers are doing as really aid. Okay. I think it falls into a development okay. program. Um, now, some aid has transferred into development. So just for, like, definition of terms, right? Um, I think there's a healthy and appropriate time for emergency services, and that would be often what aid is, right? A famine, a hurricane, um, some sort of political crisis that is not allowing people to buy food or rampant inflation. And it's acute and it's for a short amount of time and it has a start and a stop. And that's desperately needed in our world. I think what happens is it has to stop at some point and the activities have to move beyond sort of an emergency relief mode into something that develops communities. And that is very different. And the funding for that is very different and um, it requires different skill sets and it requires different staffing. So I think in terms of like what typical aid or has been, or maybe should be is um, acute and for a short amount of time. And it's an immediate delivery of a service to meet an acute need where you're dealing with like poverty and sort of um, perpetual uh, challenges that communities as particularly rural communities face or marginalized populations. I think you have to diagnose that issue differently. And that's when we start talking about community development, having a longer term horizon, who's implementing, where's the money coming from? Like we cost share stuff. So a community needs to share in the cost of the water project with us. That's a development standard development practice, right? In an aid situation, if a hurricane just came through, you're not going to say, Hey guys, I need $2 from everyone. So you're just trying to meet immediate needs. The challenge becomes when, when that aid lasts too long, it creates dependency and, and it sort of gets this negative rap, which some people have appropriately identified as failed aid or dead aid or whatever these terms are. And I don't think, you know, I don't think you'd want to characterize all humanitarian or development or faith-based work into that category because it's, um, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. 
And Justin, do you think do you think Americans have gotten a little ADD in their aid? I mean, we have uh, you know we have musicians that pop on TV, and we raise you know three billion dollars for a hurricane. But is it a little bit harder for you to sell funding because yours is a little bit longer term? It requires more social change. It isn't sending you know you know don't buy Starbucks this week, and you can send a case of water to a child, um, right? Yeah, it's the the whole Tom shoes thing, right? So, yeah. uh, buy a pair of shoes, deliver a shoes. It's tough, you know. I think our society, I think Americans are very generous. I think they want to help people, um, and I think we are used to a problem and a solution. So, a family doesn't have a home, we build them a home and habitat for humanity, right? Or kids right. don't have shoes. Oh, I can buy shoes, and and we can address problems that way. And the I, as I was saying before, I think there's an appropriate place for that. It's just maybe 20% instead of 80%. If you're looking at the whole of activity that goes on to help other people. And unfortunately, I think our mindset is more geared toward that immediate problem, a solution type of thing. And when you get into um, systemic or generational poverty or these more complex things that aren't necessarily perpetuated by an external factor, a storm or whatever, then, um, it's just more complicated and it requires some education. So, and marketers always say you don't want to educate, right? <laughs> Cause it makes people think too much. And I think, yeah. I think we do have to, I do, I do think there is a bit of education that needs to happen. So that and I, I, I find, I find for myself that giving money often feels a lot more tangible if I'm giving it for something tangible. Um, yeah. Lucy and I've talked about that in many different situations that we've been involved with or, or groups and, you know, if I am buying, if, if I'm building a house for somebody, that's a, that's a tangible, I know that money went to brick, that, that yep. money to, you know, pipes. Um, if I'm giving it for long-term change, maybe I don't feel as motivated to give that money. I think there, I think that's the emotional side, right? So we make decisions based on our emotions and our knowledge. And I think giving tends to be more of an emotional experience. Right. Um, which is interesting because if you think about like investing, it's not an emotional thing, right? You, if you were to invest in a mutual fund, you would want to learn about that fund and then you'd probably take time to think about it. Right. Um, and that's more of an educational thing. So it, it is a weird sort of thing. And I think it puts a lot of pressure on organizations like ours to figure out how we can scratch that itch that you have emotionally while also educating you in the process which is not something you've asked for, right? You haven't said, Hey, educate me. You've, you've said, Hey, I would love to help. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's the same thing with child sponsorship. Like those are, those are development projects. A good child sponsorship program is a community development project. And what, what they came up with was a way to help you identify with a part of that project. But you're, you're actually working with the whole village and the families and the grandmas and the government and the schools. And you've sort of identified your entry point through that child. We recently came up with a way where people could sponsor villages um, and have a specific village that they can connect to. And we used all of our data systems to provide updates to that village donor in real time. So if you said, hey, I want to go help this village in Ethiopia, you'd read a real story of a real village there. You could come to our website, give 50 bucks to help one person. That's about what it costs us to do. And then we'll actually send you updates as the project progresses. So you can sort of remain engaged with it. And uh, we found a lot of people like that. And it's a way for them to associate their giving with a, 
an actual place in space. You and know what that those updates, it does sound like a mutual fund, right? It's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kind of return yeah. am I getting, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And 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 the cool part about it is you get to see when the community makes achievements. So, you know, the water committee was formed and they saved and we send that update to you. So you're actually learning about the project. Uh, but it took us a long time to figure this out. I mean, it, 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 but I think that's what the the thing you're talking about, Jay, it forces us to think more deeply about the offer we make to people in a way that we can connect emotionally and logically with that brain um, a it, little it, bit it, better. Because people need educated, right? I mean, because most people have no understanding uh, of this. The research shows that the average American spends about two hours per year, which I was surprised it was even that much on making like giving decisions. And you're, you're right, we are the most generous country on the planet. We give 2% of our income, but only like 6% of that goes to projects like yours that are working internationally, helping the poorest people on the planet, you know? Well, and we spend, we spend more time on Consumer Reports trying to pick out a toaster than two hours. So it, it, it is <laughs> right? Because uh, we do, we spend a lot of time researching. We're gonna spend our consumer money, but researching a charity other than checking the operational expense equation that everybody seems to like, yeah. doesn't go that far. I know. And it's hard to differentiate between education and marketing, right? What yeah. am I learning versus what is propaganda and yeah. that's, that sort of stuff. Yeah. I do think there is, a, there is a sort of critical gap of knowledge in, available to people who are interested in learning more and um, actually learning. So uh, we've tried to create a blog where we put out a lot of content at different levels. Um, we're certainly not the only ones who are trying to do this, but there is, there are more and more resources becoming available for people if they want to dig deeper, I, I hope at least. I mean, they should read, where am I giving? Obviously, Jay, that's what people should do. That's a good that's starting a, point. Yeah. Point. I think we assumed that, right? <laughs> they are going to do that. But you, you guys have actually been like crushing it in terms of fundraising too, right? I, I read your annual report, um, in preparation for our chat and saw that you want, first off, you won some award for like an annual report, like letter from the CEO or, or whatever. So congratulations. Thank you. Uh, a shout out to our design partners over at Rule 29. Oh, they nice. us tell our yeah. story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I never sort of thought, you know, we're going to be annual report award winners. Um, but, but in that uh, report, like you guys have like tripled the amount of funds that you've raised in, in, since like 2017. Is that, is that correct? Or do I, uh, I don't know if your math is right, but oh. I think... Yeah, I, I mean, there's two things that, that have to happen. I think, um, I think you have to have results and you have to be able to follow up with people and show them the impact of what they've been giving really, it really is. So the onus is now on institutions like ours to, um, to communicate after people make gifts and show them what happened as a result of that and be genuine with it, you know, when things yeah. fail, um, you communicate that too. And I think that engenders trust yeah. and, um, and that we've been, we've been pretty, we have a lot of very gracious and loyal people who support this work and believe in it a lot. And um, slowly, slowly we've been able to grow that. Well, you know, one thing that you've um, um, shared with me before is the importance of like, people have a handle more on inputs, like of how many wells are going in or, uh, how many villages are ODF, uh, but but in terms of outcomes, uh, that's something that people need to be as givers. We need to be more focused in on because um, and, and organizations need to be more focused 
on outcomes as well. So, so what you put in a well, like how did it improve life in this community? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, the whole, the whole spectrum there is input, output, outcome. So we're used to, uh, we need money. So that's an input. We have staff and we have project schedules and materials, and that will get us this output, which is a water well. And that's sort of where we end, right? So last year, LifeWater put in 200 water wells and great. But the real outcome is, okay, is that water well sustained? Is it still working after five years? And what have been the health gains from that whole project, not just that water well? And that stuff requires some real good monitoring and evaluation. Um, And that's where I think our sector is going, looking more at those outcomes and they are longer, longer tail. You know, you're, how many more kids are going to school because they're not fetching water? That's inferred when you look at an output and say, okay, well, I'm getting 300 kids. But I think we need to do a better job of actually showing that those 300 kids are now going to school. Because if that's not happening and we're assuming that the output is driving that result, um, we are lying to ourselves about the efficacy of our work and therefore we're lying to our donors about it. So if what we're doing is just assuming that that water well is putting more kids in school and we haven't been able to actually test that or prove that, I think that's a disservice to our donor. Um, like from a Christian perspective, we call that stewardship, right? We've been entrusted with something and we need to provide a value for that. That's good stewardship. It's a like core value, right? Um, otherwise it's just wasteful. And so uh, outcomes and how you measure outcomes is a science. We have a lot of very smart people around here who, who do that. We use a very sophisticated system to monitor that. And I've seen it's a pretty huge hurdle to overcome for a lot of, a, a lot of organizations. So I'm, I'm happy that we've been able to at least get started down that path and publish that stuff and learn from it, which is the really important part. Like, um, I realized I could get really wonky on that and I don't want to. So okay. uh, you're going to stop yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just control, control my emotions. One of the things, and I don't know if we had directly talked about this before, but I've written about it and, and you've read that. You've actually shared what I wrote about the time I spent in uh, the Matari Valley community in, in Nairobi was about, yeah. I kind of had a uh, negative perception of missionaries and Christian NGOs because mm-hmm. a lot of times I was in places where it was just either people were they were involved with the military or they were a missionary and then it was just (laughs) in this weird everyone thought i was with one or the other right and then you strike me as more the missionary type just by your looks yeah Yeah. right well i think (laughs) i i had my life threatened one time because someone thought i was cia so like i could see that it's the glasses i mean it was just a verbal threat like and even this neck slit thing but uh i was actually kind of like hey that's kind of nice. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Did you tell your wife? Uh, yeah, I did later, but, um, so, so anyhow, (laughs) one of the things that really changed uh, that perception for me, which was, you know, totally, uh, um, just found it on those few experiences was traveling with you to Nairobi and, and seeing this, like this connection that you guys work through churches. And I think that's how life uh, water works as well. And you had this immediate connection around your faith and you could just like, okay, with this connection, like, let's, let's get to work. You just, it's yeah. like, it's like showing up uh, in, in uh, somewhere uh, in Africa and everyone's a Cincinnati Bengals fan, right? And, <laughs> and, and, well, you are, and you are yeah. too. And it's like, Hey, it's, I mean, it's probably a little bit deeper than that. And you probably have a bit more to celebrate than the Bengals. But um, <laughs> so I just really appreciate about that. What, what, what you guys have, uh, I've done, I just thank you for changing my perception uh, of that. 
Well, I'm happy to. I think um, to to sort of uh, add on to that, uh, it, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of a church in community, and I think we've many faith-based organizations have tried to supplant local churches. And one of the things I learned from um, my first boss, who's a great lady, Florence Mundi. I don't know if you remember Florence Kelsey. Yeah, I think uh, I Life in Abundance. I yeah, the meter. Yeah. She was a she was a medical doctor who also went to Ethiopia as a missionary and tried to get local churches to provide health to uh, slum children in Ethiopia. And what I learned from her was that the church can be a catalyst for change in community. And oftentimes they just don't have the vision for it. They just don't see, they're so used to, and this will apply a lot to churches in America, but we're so used to seeing things the way they are and thinking that we can't affect any positive change. And um, in, in Uganda, there's churches everywhere and there's child-headed households everywhere. And what we're trying to do is just inspire that local church to actually be the church, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world and go help that child-headed household to have a safe latrine for heaven's sake, you know, they're in that neighborhood and the churches could easily just walk by and that's the way it is. And what we're saying is like, no, there's more, you are the hope to this community. And um, a lot of that really changes the mindset of the church's disposition toward wanting to get people to come in and us trying to motivate them to go out and be effective change agents in the community and to look for the widows and the orphans in their distress. And um, as part of like worship, like worship is music. Sure. Worship is uh, studying and learning. Worship is also serving. Um, And we're pretty good at the first couple. um, But, you know, I think as a culture, we, we tend to be f- inward focused and uh, Florence really, really taught me that, that you can mobilize churches and they can multiply impact like never before. Like, hey, we're having a tailgate party for the Cincinnati Bagels. I just showed up. That was loud. Sorry. Um, <laughs> you get excited about the Bengals. I understand. Yeah, I know. But um, you know what I mean? Having, having people look externally. Sorry. It's saying I have another meeting. That's what that's oh. saying. You're fine. Okay. Um. So, I mean, you, you'll want to cut that part. Okay. I will. <laughs> I, I don't know if I will or not. I don't know how much editing I want to do, but if there's something that you want edited out, I will definitely edit it out. Okay. Um, well, if anybody makes it this long in the, in the uh, podcast, oh, man, really no, totally this deserving an award knowledge drops. Um, so you, you got your MBA MBA and what path did you think that you were on when you were getting your MBA? Did you know that you would go into this type of like do gooding work or is that, was that the plan? Cause you work for Boeing, right? And it, I don't necessarily think of Boeing in the same line of the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, I, I don't know how to describe a sense of calling other than like, uh, I don't, I don't know the right words to say, but when, when I sort of grew up and I knew I had a certain path that I was going on and then things changed and I sort of went down this totally different path. I knew this was the kind of work that I wanted to do, like a sense of calling. I don't know how to describe that to you, but it's just not that easy to actually do um, and pe- get people to pay you for, you know? So there's a real challenge with that. So I was working at Boeing, but I really wanted to do this kind of work. So I went to a school that focused on international business 
and had a focus on developing or emerging economies. And it was more of like product placement. Like how do you take Clorox and make it affordable to people in slums and sort of thinking about that. And how do you work within economies that don't have a banking system and things like that. Um, but what we found is that uh, a lot of the poor uh, spend a lot of money on things that cure sickness. A lot of it is health spending. So marketers in conglomerates see that as a market opportunity. And I sort of saw it as like, oh, well, you could easily prevent that and allow them to increase their savings and therefore improve their quality of life. So uh, we deal almost entirely on preventative things that would cost a lot more to treat or do cost a lot more to treat when you get a sick child versus um, having to spend, you know, whatever it costs, 40 bucks to, to serve a child versus that family spending 20 bucks six times a year when their kid's sick. Um, there's a pretty high ROI on public health. That's why Gates Foundation has invested so much money in public health because that's, that's a lever. They're getting a high multiplier on people being productive, having more productive time, paying less on healthcare. And um, so that sort of sparked that curiosity in me, and then I worked with Florence for a number of years in slums in East Africa, doing these types of things. So, were you when you were in business school? Did this uh, did these questions kind of make you uh, stand out compared to other folks that you were in class with? Was that was there friction there yeah. at all? Or uh, yeah, I mean, we I went to an interesting school. It's called Thunderbird International School of Management, I think, um, and Thank there were like. There were two tribes. I think they've changed their brand a few times. Oh, okay. there, were, there were two tribes. There were like those guys uh, going into investment banking and then like those of us talking about people selling potatoes on the side of the road. Mm. And we were very sort of distinct uh, yeah. in, our, in our paths. Um, but there was a little tribe of people that I connected pretty well with there. I don't think all business schools are like that. Uh, but I picked Thunderbird because of that particular mm. aspect. And I found it to be a great experience. Yeah. So where can people learn more about uh, your work? Uh, where do you want to point people? Yeah, lifewater.org. Um, that's, our, that's our digital home, I guess. And uh, we, we actually put everything open kimono, I should just say, out there. Uh, all of our results are there, the good and the bad. All of the projects are there. We've tried to decrease the friction between here and there and allow those things to coexist together. Um, and it's, uh, it's a good place. So go visit us, lifewater.org. Anything else you want to touch on? Any questions, Jay? No, that was great. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, Very educational for me. Good. See, you already got your one hour of education, Jay, for the year. You're good. You need to <laughs> do yeah, now you can go focus on your uh, vacuum cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> well, Justin, thank you so much for being uh, the first guest. You are definitely good people, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. Good to be with you. Love you, Kels. Yeah, love you too. See you, bud. Bye. Wow. Okay. What do you think of Justin? Um, well, he's great. Um, very straightforward and explained. Explained a lot of things I didn't know. Uh, I think I would think my biggest takeaway from the from the call was I don't think I realized the. The weight on clean water is more than just the engineering challenge, yep. right? So you get the water pumps running. I had a friend that was in the Peace Corps, and he did. He was an engineer and did water pumps. So he'd go to villages and he'd build a water pump. They'd have fresh water, done, right? American out. Yeah, <laughs> we're done. Yeah. See ya. Um, but I, I didn't even think about the fact that without um, 
uh, proper sanitary habits and bathrooms and, you know, really a village taking on that responsibility in full, yeah. um, that they're going to fail. Had no, no concept of that at all. And so when evaluating where to get money on places that provide water, what's the social change they yeah. create? I don't know how to evaluate that. Yeah. I haven't thought of it. I mean, the wells are the sexy part, right? Right, yeah. I've seen a lot of wells in villages that were um, put in and never kept up. And then it becomes even more dangerous because the locals were told that this is a safe water source. Oh. And then they go and they still they get a full sense this. of security. And then it's not, it has not been maintained. And sometimes they'll use parts that are not locally accessible. Mm-hmm. So there's so many wells. I don't know what the, Justin probably wouldn't know the exact percentage of wells that are broken. Right. But that's one thing I really appreciate about LifeWaters work is that uh, I was actually, I didn't talk about this, I was actually in one of the instructional videos one time. Oh, you yeah, were? Yeah, I was, I was in California <laughs> and where, where Justin lives and they were, I was trying to meet up with him. He's like, we're actually we're doing a shoot this day. Over. Yeah. And how to repair wells. So we, we'd stand there and they'd be like, okay, hold this tool right here. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't. What, I didn't. I didn't know before we started that you were a model. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I should put that in my resume. That's great. My LinkedIn profile. Oh, you should. So that was um, another thing that Justin didn't share, but something that was really impactful. I me, mean, two stories. One was that Justin told me, I believe this is who told me this, that he was at a, a water dedication really early on in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it wasn't with Life Water. It was before all that. I don't even know if it was one of his projects. But he was at this, like, celebration for this well that had just been put in. And um, as soon as it was over, he saw an elder go to this open water source that wasn't the well and was drinking from it. Hmm. Like he was just so – so without that behavior change or why would you want to use this well versus that without the education piece of, right. I mean, one of the things that really stood out to me and Justin even has to tell us this is what they, they go in with like, they say like poop and water. Yeah. They shake it up. It's like, Hey, would you drink this? And everybody says no. And then like, well, that's what you're drinking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I that's... thought that was really powerful. Yeah. Um, a second story about Justin was in the community. I was in Mathari Valley, which I write about a little bit in Mermaid Giving where I hung out with the two cousins, Thomas and James. Um, when I was there with Justin, people kept coming up to him and they wanted this bridge across the stream so they could carry stuff across it and or something. And, and, and uh, everyone kept like, what about this bridge? And some other organization had come and promised them a bridge and had just never returned, never met that promise, which happens a lot, right? Yeah, sure. Corners showing up, promising things and are unable to follow through. And I remember Justin saying, like, there's other, there's more important things right now for the long term, the difference between aid and development, like yeah. for the long term success of developing as a community, yeah. bridge isn't, shouldn't be the focus right now. Yeah. Uh, that, well, that was, and that was something else too, is, um, you know, it, it is easier and maybe, maybe many of us, um, you know, in the, in this part of the the world get focused on that sort of short term. Uh, and I mentioned it, I, I said something about it in the, in the interview, but um, you know, if there's a hurricane, there's a, you know, you have U2 and uh, Beyonce and all these people on TV raising money. And we raised $3 billion for a post hurricane effort, which there's a purpose for that too, yeah. but longer term, then we're gone. 
right? You have to think about what's going to sustain the culture, what's going to sustain the infrastructure. Um, so I wonder sometimes if we don't get too focused on that short term and, and uh, the ADD of ours from a charitable standpoint. Um, it's just, we're really not analytical enough about it, right? So hurricane hit Haiti, devastated Haiti. Um, this was, was it tsunami. What hit Japan after the? It was a tsunami. Yeah, it was a tsunami. It was, tsunami. It was an earthquake. Right? And then the the meltdown of the nuclear facility or whatever, yeah. the near meltdown and yeah. contamination, and yeah. and so those two things happen. And I believe that Japan actually got more money than Haiti. And Japan is like, at a certain point, they were like, no, no, we're good. Stop. We don't need yeah. your money. And, and then in Haiti, uh, where you know, they, they should receive much more money mm-hmm. for disaster. I mean, so they're, they're, needed they're, money. Yeah, the infrastructure and the capabilities. Are, the economy. It's, yeah. yeah. They're a lot less able to overcome such a tragedy, yet they receive uh, less than Japan. Of course, what money they did receive. I mean, I saw a quote one time. It's like they we spent was it three? You said three billion, but was it actually three billion? I don't know. It was like a billion. I think it was like it's literally a, a billion. Money, yeah. And this article is like, and they built one house. Yeah. You know, and like the how are those funds and efficiently used. So. It's, well, that's the other hard. That's the other hard part of giving. And my wife and I have been involved with a couple projects projects in Haiti, and sometimes they go well, and sometimes we wasted money. Yeah. Frankly, um, it's just so hard to know. And Haiti's one of those places that makes that difficult. But I think that's why some of the things he said about that sustainability and long-term made me think differently about when I hand that dollar off, what's it going to do than before. All right, man. Anything else? No, it's great. First one in the books. Thanks, Justin. Drink our fudge pop, which I just shared that story about Justin and the water. Yeah. (laughs) It looks so great. A little bit less appealing. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchieart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.